Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 106, and today's guest is Chase Gabarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO. Entrepreneurship is core to what Chase is all about professionally. It is in his DNA that even stems from his childhood years. I was excited to interview Chase because I wanted to learn more about his history of building companies, including one that you might have heard of and maybe even still read today, that being Boston L. It is a story of how he became an accidental media entrepreneur and scaled it to the point of an acquisition by American City Business Journals. His latest company is HQO, a tenant experience platform that connects people to places, experiences, and each other. They fall under the prop tech segment of the tech industry, which is one of the fastest growing areas of technology. And the company recently announced a $6 million new round of funding from several notable investors. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Chase's background and the early companies he founded, the full story of Bostano in terms of how it got started, raised funding, scaled, and exited, all the details behind HQO, including its business model and plans looking ahead, advice on how to communicate a company's pivot with investors, lessons learned from raising capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every day? It is a great way to keep informed of the over 4,000 jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chase. Chase, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to catch up and I'm excited to talk to you about uh, so much. Obviously, you're, you've started lots of things, lots of companies. Uh, I'm excited to hear about HQO and what you're up to now. Go through the history of Boston, which is super fun to hear about. Uh, but let's start from the beginning. What, what were you like as a, as a child? Were you always like an entrepreneur? It seems like you always had that kind of vibe to you. Yeah, I, uh, I was in that, I don't know if you remember, um, when I was, let's say maybe fifth grade, there was this, uh, I don't know, like a toy or a game called pogs where like kids would hit these little cardboard stacks with what was called a slammer. Mm -hmm. And it was like all the rage, uh, in elementary school. And I wasn't particularly interested in playing. I was interested in selling them. So my mother used to take me and I'd buy pogs wholesale and then sell them in fifth grade to like kids at school. So I think I always enjoyed selling things and uh, building businesses. I had a few businesses in high school and college. In college, I imported ping pong balls from China and sold them to uh, uh, to frats and sororities all over. For beer pong and like playing pong? <laughs> yeah, yeah, playing ping pong, yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't ask what they were using them for, but uh, uh, I enjoyed that more so than uh, classroom work for sure. So I've, uh, both my father and my grandfather were entrepreneurs. So I guess it's something that just runs in the blood. Got it. Yeah. And that was actually the question I was going to ask you because I'm always curious as to where that entrepreneurial vibe comes from. You know, it is something that can be taught, but a lot of times it is instilled from what you learn uh, from your parents or other influential people. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, I remember dating back to uh, probably middle school. My father would constantly tell me stories about, uh, you know, different entrepreneurs who build businesses. I watched my father, um, 
at one point when I was growing up, he was running a furniture business that um, had IPO'd and then it got crushed on the public market. So he like made it for a little bit and then came down. I watched him build an occupational healthcare business uh, that was pretty successful. And then I've been watching him uh, build other healthcare businesses since I've been a grown up. So he and I, you know, trade war stories and I got, I was fortunate to watch somebody uh, constantly uh, working his tail off to try to build something. So uh, I, I received an early education um, from him just by uh, osmosis and watching uh, watching his uh, his growth as an entrepreneur. So it was cool. I didn't I didn't appreciate it until you know I got older. But uh, I've talked to people that said you know I didn't I didn't have uh, that growing up. So there's definitely like a ten thousand hours thing that I've just been lucky to be around somebody that's been doing it for so long. And then you went to, to, to Hamilton and you're the founder and president of the entrepreneurship club there. Mm-hmm. And, and like, when did you actually start building your first company? Like outside of, you know, the hustling of selling stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was at Hamilton. My co-founder Kevin McCarthy and I started, uh, an online publication. So we had, we'd become interested in digital media, um, mostly around the software piece of like, um, user generated content. So, you know, we were watching, you know, YouTube's growth. We were watching college humor's growth and we weren't particularly interested in, um, content production, but more about how software was scaling content from, you know, non-professional content, uh, producers. So, you know, we had created a, uh, I wouldn't call it a publication because that would suggest there was some sort of organization to it. We had created a site where students all over the country could post content. Uh, it's called Campus Word. So we, uh, this is 2004, 2005. Online advertising was not particularly sophisticated. So there was an ad network called AdBright where you would get basically flat fees of payment for like a link ad. Um, so it's pretty easy to make money if you had some decent traffic, it wasn't, you know, performance related or anything like that. So those were the golden days for online advertising. And, you know, it was like the blind leading the blind running that, running that site. We learned a lot. We made some good money for college students. And then when we graduated in 2007, you know, we had, we had gotten, uh, bit by the entrepreneurship bug and then particularly tech startups, um, and we want to, you know, continue doing that. So we went, uh, moved to Boston and, uh, uh, tried to dive into the tech startup scene here. And then you worked on Pinata next, right? Yeah. So we saw with, you know, with what we did with campus word, we thought that was a very, uh, small niche of like how people would share content, particularly targeted at colleges. Um, what we wanted to do with Pinata was we saw that the way that people were going to get information and content online was going to be social. So if you remember Google reader, which was an RSS reader, mm-hmm. we thought there was a lot of room for improvement with regards to like social news sharing. So pin stood for personalized information network. And then we couldn't think of a name. So we just said, yada, 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 pinata. And that's how we did it. <laughs> Um, but we wanted to create like a social news sharing network, which this was in 
2007. So Facebook hadn't opened up their platform yet. Um, Twitter, I think, was being created at the very same time. Somewhere along the way, Pinterest was set up. Uh, and we, we did, it was an okay platform. Like we had 50,000 users, uh, probably, you know, the top 10% were like highly engaged. Um, but it was like pretty in-depth conversation about the news, which was a little heavy handed for like the bell curve of users, uh, to join. And we couldn't raise funding cause we were, you know, young, right out of college, consumer technology in Boston wasn't kind of the core focus area of VCs. There wasn't a lot of seed capital. And further, we probably had no clue how to actually ask for money uh, the right way. So we had the brilliant idea that, you know, Boston is a problem. There's no support of young entrepreneurs, can't raise money. What we need is like TechCrunch in Boston because we never got you know, any promotion on the East Coast. So... I, uh, in, I think it was January of 2008, I sent out an email to a bunch of people that I knew saying, Hey, I started this open publishing platform called Boston innovation. I couldn't afford Boston innovations. <laughs> and I think like Boston innovation was like 800 bucks. So that's how much money I had at the time, not a lot, um, that, so I bought Boston Innovation, one word, and people just started posting on it. And it kind of started to snowball, like more people started posting, like really interesting young people working in uh, life sciences were posting, a lot of entrepreneurs were writing about what they were working on. And then a buddy of mine, Greg Gomer, who I grew up with in Duxbury, who had been doing some part-time work on Pinata. Uh, kind of took to the platform and started getting more people to write for it. And we took some of the technology we had built for Pinata and started aggregating content to Bostono. And then Mayor Menino, uh, at the time mayor of Boston, wrote an article and that kind of um, got us some legitimacy. And so he wrote an article for Boston Innovations. Yes. Yeah. So we were very much trying to emulate what the Huffington Post did so well in those days, which was this like democratic, you know, contributor network. Um, and we had started getting, you know, CMOs, CEOs, different folks from the business community writing. And uh, then the mayor ended up writing and that kind of snowballed the community publishing kind of concept with regards to targeting a city's business community. So um, then we, that kind of got us on the radar of the folks over at what used to be Atlas Venture, now Accomplice. So Ryan Moore and Jeff Fagnan, and uh, they wrote us uh, some small checks, got us off the ground, raised a little bit of money and we were fully a financed media business. Um, and what was your pitch for that to, to close funding from them? Um, the pitch was probably uh, a, a hot mess of a pitch. <laughs> looking back on it, I still can't believe they fu funded us, but uh, thank God they did. Um, I think what we said was, look, there's, um, there's a lot of ad dollars that are still locked up in traditional channels, print, radio, um, specifically when you look at B2B, B2B marketing at the time was really on the rise. Content marketing was huge for uh, B2B. And um, 
we saw a pretty big opportunity to take Huffington Post was disrupting traditional media on a national verticalized model. So we think there's more money to be had if you can do it at a local level and get some of those uh, local ad dollars. Um, and I think, I think they, that made a lot of sense because just if you look at the trends of traditional dollars going to digital, it was happening. The issue is that local is a huge pain. Um, and still, uh, you know, educating local advertisers about digital still to this day is pretty tough. Now this was like 2008, 2009. So most people remember that was the economic financial downturn. That was horrible. Yet it was a resurgence. Oh, it was a nightmare. Uh, that's actually what led me to start venture Fizz Cause I, I, you know, as a recruiter and I had no search work cause everyone was laying people off. So I'm like, I need to spend my time productively somehow. Yeah. Um, but so this was a, uh, what I consider a golden time of the, the Boston tech scene where you had this resurgence of, you know, Menino and whoever else was supporting the movement into the seaport, which is just ridiculous now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you had what you guys were doing with Boston Innovation. You had, um, you know, Dark Boston and, and Court and, you know, things like tech proms happening. And it was just like, a, it was a fun time. Yeah, it really was. I remember like, you know, we care, we cared very much about Boston being a plat because we felt the issue too. Like we had the hardest time getting intros to VCs. We had the hardest time raising capital, which, uh, as you mentioned, that was the financial crisis. So, um, it was hard for almost everybody to raise capital, but, uh, most people who had graduated in that like 08, 09, 2010 era were having a brutal time getting jobs and startups and, you know, creating your own job was seen as like one of the only viable ways to put yourself to work for some young people who were having a really hard time. So um, we believed in kind of the cause of like creating connectivity between the higher ed institutions and uh, startups that were actually hiring people and trying to bolster that portion of the economy. We thought that technology was predominantly associated with, you know, tech oriented products and Silicon Valley, you know, storage companies in Boston, but we thought technology is really going to seep into every industry, whether it's healthcare, education, finance, all that, you know, all the things that we do pretty well in Boston. So, um, we should be connecting the relatively siloed industries and segments uh, in Boston with the interesting technology startups. So we're very much a, as I mentioned to you prior to this, a fan blog and that we wanted the, the technology companies to succeed rather than kind of traditional journalists. That, that really wasn't our model. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, you're an accidental media yeah. entrepreneur, yep. not a trained journalist that were, that was, you know, you set out of school, like I'm going to be the best tech journalist and right. crush it. <laughs> right. No, that was never, never our goal. We wanted to help companies succeed. So, you know, occasionally we'd be at odds with, I think what people expected from in their mind, the concept of uh, a publication and, you know, at different points of the journey with Bostino uh, and difference that we had a few different like generations of Bostino writers. You know, we leaned a little bit more towards journalism. We leaned a little bit more towards kind of like fan blog. Um, but uh, I think our, our best days were very much when we were kind of leaning into the whole 
uh, rah-rah Boston tech developing the community with, you know, what you guys did with venture fizz, what court did at dark Boston. Like that really was, uh, like the first tech stars class I think was a pretty big deal. So it was a fun time for sure. So you raise capital. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this? We're going to actually build a legit company and hire staff, expand to other markets. Like you had the DC in the capital and then you started doing events like yep. 50 on fire and all this. So, so talk about that kind of evolution of scaling Boston out. Yeah. So we quickly learned, you know, that we were, we we're very good at bringing people together in person. Events are highly profitable. They're tough to scale because they're human capital intensive, but um, the connection between, you know, selling ad packages that were digital combined with getting people in a room together events uh, was kind of our sweet spot. So we started ramping up ways to help bolster community through events and we did pretty well and thank God we did that because it was pretty profitable for us. Um, and we started expanding to different markets. So we did DC, we did Chicago, uh, we did New York for I think two days and quickly shut it down. Uh, Why? That New York was just a bear of a market and like <laughs> the amount that you would have had to pay people was a nightmare. So we pulled out pretty quickly from New York. Um, and uh, we ended up in Chicago hiring a buddy of mine, Will Flanagan, who I went to Hamilton with and Will still to this day uh, helps run uh, the parent company, which is I think in 14 markets. So they've kept it, kept it rolling. They've rebranded the, the company to American Inno. So the, the short Inno of Boston uh, lives on, which is cool. And you guys were early adopters of video. Like I, I, I used to watch, you know, the, the Boston will beat, I think religiously almost every week. I mean, it was, uh, it was like sports center. Yeah. We tried to make it like comedy because everybody, you know, business, local business media can get pretty boring pretty quick. Um, so we tried to do a spin of sports center, but, uh, a little bit more poking fun at the, the community, which I think people, most people found refreshing. Some, some people didn't have a great sense of humor about it, but we didn't say anything too bad. So, um, it was, I do think we were a little early, like now, I think from a distribution standpoint, what LinkedIn has done, I think we'd have a lot more success, um, in terms of growing audience off of that, even Twitter, like, the social platforms hadn't started emphasizing video like they do now where you show up in people's feeds so much more significantly. Um, but we had a lot, we had a ton of fun doing it. We worked with a local group, a uh, local video group that was here in Boston. They've since uh, gone out to LA and they're pretty successful now. Um, so it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of great guests. There's some memorable uh, people that came on, at least memorable to the Boston tech scene that, that, uh, you can still find those videos on YouTube if you really want to go dig more. <laughs> That'd be fun to kind of do a, it'd be fun to do like kind of a, a recap of what was newsy then. Yeah. Uh, as well as like the first generation of writers, when you just open it up, you know, those people have gone off to do some great things with their careers. Yeah. I mean, people are like HBR, uh, Lauren Landry has been tremendously successful. Lisa DeCanio, and even not on the writing side, but Melissa Applett, I think, is running a bunch of CIC locations over in Europe. So we were pretty lucky that we got a uh, – at the time, um, we were very lucky because I think we 
Lisa, Lauren, and Melissa were like the first three people we interviewed and we just hired all three of them. <laughs> You're hired. Lucky they, they turned out to be really good, but we had no idea how to, how to vet candidates and all those things. So we probably could have used your help, but uh, we, we got lucky that all three of them were phenomenally talented. Can you write? You're hired. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. I still joke. Lauren came in with like the most comprehensive binder and I don't think we even looked at, we were like, wow, that's tremendously more organized than we are. So you're hired. <laughs> all right. So fast forward, you know, you expanded all these markets, you're growing, building a business. What, so what happened next? Like were you at a crossroads of, Hey, we're going to raise money and then the acquisition happened. So what happened kind of that time frame? Yeah. So we were trying to raise uh, larger financing, which for digital media, like those businesses, um, anything that was predicated upon original content creation was having a lot of trouble raising capital. And uh, particularly in Boston, it's just not like a, um, a focus area for our venture community. New York, you've got a little bit more money that goes to media. So we were having trouble raising our next financing. And at that time I got to meet the folks at, uh, American city business journals. So I actually met them on opening day, Red Sox day. I went to the game with them and some other people from Boston and, uh, they're located in Charlotte. They're owned by advanced publications, which owns, uh, Condé Nast, their largest shareholder and discovery channel, uh, Reddit. So they're big, media holding company and ACBJ was, uh, in 45 markets with like the Boston business journal, Philly business journal, very successful business. And I think we had digital DNA that, uh, they were trying to adopt in house, you know, converting from a weekly print magazine to, um, uh, you know, a, a digital publication. They had a very robust event business as did we, but we had different age demos. So, we had a younger age demo than they did. Um, so it was a, it was a really good marriage and thank God we weren't able to raise, uh, more capital because we, we ended up having a good exit with those guys. It was the right time to sell the business and the right organization to buy the business and grow it. Um, so that was, that was 2012 and, uh, we, they have successfully, uh, successfully grown, uh, you know, as they call it, uh, pretty well, pretty well since. Yeah, no, it's Boston. It was a very meaningful piece of the, you know, still the tech coverage of Boston. So it's, uh, it's, I'm glad it still is preserved and still, you know, humming along. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a different tone than I think when, when I was there, but, uh, that's probably for the best. <laughs> okay. So after you kind of wound down your responsibilities, uh, through that acquisition, what's, uh, like, what, what was next? Were you like, okay, I'm going to start a company. I just need to figure out what, like what, what kind of happens next? Yeah. Ready, fire, aim. Um, so we left, uh, ACBJ 2015, 2016, and we, Kevin McCarthy, Greg Gomer and I, so founders of, uh, Boston and we were, you know, we always believed that the local community that we helped connect was, uh, there's more value than we're able to capture through a traditional media business model. And that is not a good reason to start a business, but we did it anyway. You know, we should have made more money and we're going to figure out a different way to do it. So, you know, our, our backgrounds, Kevin and myself are really in software development, not media. So 
Um, we thought, you know, there's certain things that are broken about LinkedIn, particularly you don't really, um, you know, your closest business contacts you don't engage with on LinkedIn. So that seems somewhat backwards. Um, and it was like a very loose thesis. I wouldn't even call it a thesis, but we basically wanted to start something new. So we went to our investors from Boston and said, Hey, we're going to start something new. And they wrote us a check to get started. And I think the guys at Accomplice knew like, it's not going to be whatever you think it is now. Um, so we built a bunch of software that nobody really needed. Um, we did kind of like a B2B marketplace for a little bit. We worked And this on, was Venture App. Yes, called Venture App. We did some B2B messaging. Um, and we got a lot of false positives because obviously through Boston, uh, the, the local network was pretty good in terms of people we could reach. So... You know, about a year, year and a half in, you know, I was looking at the numbers and I said, I don't think we have a business here. We need to, we need to figure out what we're going to do because you don't take venture capital, uh, and, uh, and lose that money. So I went out in search of a customer and I was talking to a buddy of mine at WeWork and I was kind of showing him what we had built. And he was like, look, what you guys have built is really interesting as it applies to commercial real estate and specifically the tenant experience at a, at the building level. We have this portal at WeWork. It's not great just because the team we have on it is very small. We're focused on other things. You know, we should, we should discuss ways that we could potentially work together. And we took a step back and our, one of our two largest advertising segments at Boston was commercial real estate. So we knew a bunch of folks in that space. And, you know, our bias was, uh, people who own buildings make a ton of money and they don't, why would they spend money on technology? And two, even if they did commercial real estate is not exactly on the cutting edge and it's a slow industry. The sales cycles will be brutal. And this is 2017. I went and spoke to a ton of landlords, a bunch of brokerage groups and all that was changing. So because of WeWork, the, the industry was kind of scared into mobilizing to evolve, adopt technology, think about being innovative, think about their model. And we very, very quickly got um, to some of the largest asset managers on the planet. So commercial real estate is, you know, trillions of dollars in global investment. It's one of the largest asset classes on the planet. You've got groups like Blackstone, Brookfield, huge, huge money managers that put a lot of money into commercial real estate. And they all were uh, making technology a top priority at the C level. So, you know, we quickly saw, we, we had started a media business on the wrong downtrend of media be, becoming a very difficult business and not a very profitable one. And this seemed to be going the exact opposite way where um, businesses with tons of money wanted to spend on technology. So, you know, we, we started thinking about really how software can facilitate connection, which again, our original thesis was for local business community, but uh, you, you make it even smaller a software can facilitate physical connection to a building, right? Um, and that, that became pretty interesting to us because we said, you know, it really does make sense that, you know, you spend so much of your time at a building that software should facilitate the day in the life of a tenant at a building. So everything from uh, transportation, how you get to and from a building, uh, control, so unlocking a door, accessing the parking garage, 
uh, commerce, spending, you know, buying your coffee, you know, booking a yoga class, whatever the amenities are at a building, and then you know, community and connectivity, you know, getting certain information from the property team, getting information from the neighborhood, other tenants, whatever makes sense for the tenant makeup of that asset. We're like, it's kind of crazy that, you know, you don't have a remote control for your building. Uh, and so that we, we found some legs in that and we quickly, uh, closed deals with very, very large landlords and were able to raise, uh, raise some money from accomplice and then a bunch of strategics. Um, so real estate folks are investors at heart and now they all want to invest in technology, which is a good thing. Um, so we're able to bring a lot of our customers in as investors and we've, uh, we've been heads down now in prop tech, which is, it's funny to see, uh, similar to what we did with Boston tech in 2008, 2009, all these publications are popping up to cover technology within the commercial real estate market. So I get to be on the other side of the table. Now I'm not in the media business that's trying to create community for commercial real estate tech, but uh, it's fun to watch. Well, I see you're like on like the speaking circuit at these prop tech conferences, like you're out yeah. there quite a bit, just evangelizing yeah. what you're doing. So what, so talk more about HQO. Like, so what, what do you guys do now? Yeah. So, uh, we, you know, we think of this new, it's a new segment of software. So tenant experience software really gives landlords, uh, owners and operators of buildings software tools to own the relationship with the people in the building. So it's a fascinating market in that, you know, the, the big landlords buy and sell buildings for tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they don't know how the end user of the product uses the product, which is fascinating. They know the person who pays the rent. They know the office manager who submits issues with the building when there are issues, but they don't know the 99% of people who come in and out of an office building and how they use the building. When do they come to the building? How often do they come to the building? What ground level retail amenities are they actually engaging with? So that seems like a pretty massive opportunity for them to become more data driven about uh, their asset strategy and ultimately how they drive net operating income off of a building. So um, we give landlords uh, white labeled apps that they can give to their tenants that can facilitate any piece of the experience that's relevant to the building. So, you know, it looks different at different buildings, but if you have a downtown building that's near a lot of public transit options and the public transit is a critical piece of the experience. We integrate with a third party called transit screen, which aggregates public transit data. So tenants can see when the next train is coming when the next bus is coming. Uh, we integrate with retail technologies. So all of the retailers at a building, if you want to order your lunch or buy something from the retailers, you can do it in one place and landlords actually have some financial leverage in that they'll give money to tenants to, encourage spending at their retailers. So there's some, some uniqueness in the model compared to uh, some retail technologies that sell direct to the restaurants. Landlords have a lot of leverage. Uh, and it's a, it gives property teams tools to share event postings, to message with tenants. Um, communication with people in a building has been a, has been a real challenge for people operating buildings. So uh, when you have a direct connection uh, with tenants, you can, uh, more efficiently share, you know, very critical information if there's like an emergency, um, but also less critical information that's more fun about you know, ice cream social, which we've learned is non-commercial real estate people. Commercial real estate industry loves a good ice cream social. So 
you got to You got to have that functionality for sure. And it, it, so this is for, you know, commercial, you know, properties. Is this also like, you know, you know, the towers of residential, like an apartment type of complex that would be in downtown Boston. Yeah. So we're, we started, predominantly focused on office landlords, but the way that the market works essentially is most of our clients that invest in office, uh, a lot of them have multifamily residential. So we're not currently live in any multifamily buildings, but mixed use is such a trend that it makes sense that there will be one, one software application for say, uh, an office building, a residential, and then the retail that connect the two. So we're moving, um, by pure market demand, we're getting pulled in that direction as we go. And what's the business model? Like, so how does it work as far as, you know, is this a, like a subscription that they're paying for or how does it all work? Yeah. So on the office side, everything is in per every, the whole industry runs on per square foot. So we're five cents per square foot and that's annually. So it's a SaaS model. And then there are some additional fees depending on what kind of, you know, it's true enterprise technology. So um, we have a success team that will help provide certain services around, you know, how to read data and how to uh, ultimately make the shift as a commercial real estate business from being, you know, traditional commercial real estate to tech enabled and data driven, which um, it's just a new, new skill set that we help them adopt and make part of their DNA in house. And you raised a, a round of funding uh, towards the end of last year. Um, so, so what's the goal? What's the plan ahead for HQO in terms of using that funding and growing the company? Yeah. So uh, we raised 7 million in October. Accomplice led the round. We had participation from uh, JLL's new uh, fund, JLL Spark, uh, two prop tech funds, Navitas and Metaprop, as well as Jamestown, one of our clients, Divco West, one of our clients and the Pritzker group, uh, out in Chicago and LA. So a lot of folks with, uh, deep real estate ties and, uh, we're opening up an office in New York. Uh, and we're like, like every other company in Boston, we're trying to hire good technologists, um, and account managers. We've got currently, we've got more, uh, more buildings and square footage than we can, we can manage. Uh, so we need to, we need to ramp up our, uh, our headcount and our account management. You've had some exciting launches recently, like major flagship properties in different cities. Yeah. So we just launched with Blackstone through their um, subsidiary EQ offices. They own the Willis Tower, which is the former Sears Tower in Chicago. It's the second tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. So we launched with them about a month ago. Um, that was tremendously exciting. I mean, just a building of that scale, the amount of people that come in and out and seeing uh, you know, they were trending in the Google play store as the top business app the day that they launched that just scale of people that they reach is, is pretty fascinating. And, uh, we very, very quickly started getting data on how people use the building, which, you know, they, they previously didn't have access to. So, um, you know, our, our strategy is very much to kind of own the top of the market from a landlord perspective by assets under management. So very large private equity funds and REITs. And uh, through those groups, we, we launch with, uh, with landlords that own some of the most iconic assets on the planet, which is pretty exciting. 
Now, what's the, the future outlook? Like, what's your goal for HQO? Like, kind of, you know, what you're telling investors of your strategy? Yeah, yeah. So, we really want to be, I mean, the way that we think of it, which is a little esoteric, but the software layer for the physical world. So, as we start to think about, um, you know, mobile was the big platform in which uh, all new technologies were built and distributed over the last five to 10 years. And mobile's kind of saturated now and that everybody has a mobile phone and most distribution happens through the app stores and that's, uh, that game is kind of set and won. And we think that, you know, the next five to 10 years, uh, the big opportunities for new tech distribution and uh, a new true platform business exists in um, the physical built world. So buildings are starting to be wired up with technology and there's going to be a lot of interesting ways that new softwares and new technologies are dependent upon um, talking to building technology to succeed. Even if you think about autonomous driving, if you think about drones flying around cities, if you think about augmented reality, all of these new tech concepts that people have been talking about, for those to truly be executed well in cities, uh, buildings are going to need to be able to speak to those technologies. And so landlords need a software layer in which they can integrate with lots of different technologies, particularly as um, millennials expect experience and uh, experiences need to be tech enabled. So, you know, we really want to be the software layer for landlords to plug and play different technologies to create great experiences. And, um, you know, global real estate is a $228 trillion investment asset class. So there's no shortage of money in real estate investing. Um, so it's pretty, pretty exciting market opportunity. And uh, um, we've gotten lucky on timing and that they're all uh, very interested in adopting technology, which is great. Well, the interesting part of your story is certainly the pivot, right? So you did finally land on a market that was spending and great timing, like you just mentioned. Yeah. So how did those conversations go with your earlier investors? And they, they knew you know, what you're starting out to do may not be the end result, but how do you communicate with the investors to keep them informed of what you're doing? Like what entrepreneurs as they're going through an evolution of figuring out what they're going to land on, how do you communicate that back to the, to the investors? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think, uh, a younger me in my twenties would have probably just been like, we're doing it. I don't care what you think. And that's not the right way to do it. Um, you know, I said, look, I've got a little bit of a hunch in that, you know, our original thesis of connecting people in the real world through software isn't wrong. We have the wrong customer focus and we have the wrong distribution channel. Um, so I want to start exploring conversations with commercial real estate groups and, no, there, the general consensus was, okay, you can explore, but the sales cycle is going to be a nightmare. You're not going to be able to sell to them. And I said, that's very- And they're laggards, right? They haven't adopted this yet. So you're trying to educate a buyer. Totally. And the, the fair concern um, is that this isn't a new idea. I mean, people in the 90s were trying to build building portals on the web, right? Um, and so what we had to really do was one money talks. So you have to get customers sign contracts. Really that at the end of the day was what convinced our investors that this was 
you know, let's burn the boats and go, uh, go fully into commercial real estate tech. But the question most VCs, almost all good VCs and accomplice, they're very good VCs ask why now? Right. And you have to have a really good answer as to why now. And we had some a pretty good answer on the confluence of one, you know, tenant experience software didn't make sense prior to mobile proliferation because sitting at a computer isn't how you physically experience a building, right? Like you walk around a building, like, so the fact that everybody has a computer in their pocket is the first thing that needed to happen before this category of software could potentially succeed. Second thing that needs to happen and it's, it's underway, but it's still early is IOT because on the phone, the richness of the application is dependent upon how many things you can talk to at the building. So as point of sale systems are now internet enabled, as uh, security systems are now internet enabled, lighting, HVAC, all those things in a building can talk to a software application. Uh, the richness of the software application and the value to the tenant increases. So the whole smart building concept, which has been talked about for a very long time, but not reality is starting to become reality. And then the third thing that really convinced everybody is that WeWork has just scared the shit out of the industry. And it's like, uh Oh, people are doing things differently and we need to change. And that's what has kind of moved, uh, moved the market where it's like, okay, we can no longer just rest on our laurels. So I think that we had a really good answer for why now. And uh, luckily, you know, you know, now we're 15 to 18 months later, we were seem, seemed to have been right. What about managing the team? So you, you had probably team members that have been along the journey throughout the different iterations of what you're doing. How do you communicate that to the team where they are like finally bought into, okay, this is actually what we're going to do. Yeah, that was, that was almost more, I think you had to, we had to be more delicate there uh, than with investors. Investors take a portfolio approach, right? They've got, um, they've got lots of bets. So that's part of their core model. Whereas you've had people who only have one bet and they've invested a lot of time and energy into building something that isn't working and convincing them, you know, while, it seems like we're very far off with a little bit of a different change in direction. We could be building something big. And I think that um, what we did, I think well, and only because we um, screwed this up probably a few times in previous businesses was um, typically in startups, you move really fast and consensus isn't a concept that startup founders uh, necessarily care about. And I think what we tried to do was rather than just say, Hey, this is what we're going to do to all the, all the people on the team. We got them in front of, um, prospective clients so they could see firsthand the appetite and the demand and excitement for what we could potentially build in a new segment. And, you know, a lot of the folks from venture app that, uh, had been with, with us from the get go are still here today. And, it's amazing how none of us come from commercial real estate and we're all now, uh, you can't, you can't walk down the street in, in a city and not say like, Oh, who owns that building? And this one's leased by so-and-so. So now we're all like fully in the commercial real estate space, which is kind of funny. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, we definitely had to be mindful of, uh, 
how the team would take it. But I also think entrepreneurs um, overestimate, you know, a lot of times startup CEOs think it's hard, you know, it's hard to share uh, the reality with the team. The team always takes it way better than the startup founders think. Like they're tough, they're smart. They, they were the key reason that we were able to successfully pivot. What about raising capital the sec- second time? Like what were your lessons learned that you'd want to pass along to other entrepreneurs that, you know, the first time around, you know, I, I wish I would have done X and the second time around, you know, I learned so much. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that I've just gotten to know how venture capital, private equity and institutional capital works much better, mostly because I fell on my face time and time again, trying to raise capital during a down economy, trying to raise capital for a media business in a non-media market, trying to raise capital in a market that was literally going down. So um, I started in very harsh conditions and um, you know, what, what I think is really important is understanding the fundamentals of how venture capital and private equity work. And unfortunately, VC websites, you know, I'll talk about how they're like entrepreneur friendly and all those things. And it's not that they're not entrepreneur friendly, but um, you're not the customer. Any, and the way that the world works is whoever pays your salary is your customer. And VCs get paid on management fees from other investors. So they're just middlemen of money. And I think understanding that they really do play Babe Ruth baseball and that they strike out a lot, but they try to swing hard and typically 25 to 30% of their investments need to yield their returns and understanding the math that any one investment, they really have to see a clear path as to how you return, say, the full size of their fund or really 1.5 X the size of their fund on one deal and speaking their language. So I think that's really critical. I also think that um, the best thing that entrepreneurs can do. And I was the polar, I was literally the caricature of the, the kid who didn't do this is open up with all of the challenges that you have with your business because uh, VCs, the, these, uh, guys and girls get pitched so much that, and they get pitched the dream and everybody's killing it and everybody's crushing it. That one of the best ways to kind of cut through the noise is to really just be transparent because every company has problems, right? Like, so uh, from a credibility standpoint, just getting them to trust you is the easiest way to get their money. And you typically do that by, by sharing the biggest challenges you have, not your biggest successes. You're obviously very busy building a, a company, uh, but outside of work, what, what else do you like to do? Well, I got a seven month old son now. So my wife, Jess, and I pretty much, um, I live on a plane because our clients have buildings in a lot of different cities. So when I'm not, uh, when I'm not working and flying, I've been trying to indoctrinate my son Dash to be a Boston, good Boston sports fan. So we've been watching the Celts, uh, the Sox, the Bruins, the Pats. Um, but other than that, there's not not a lot. So I'm uh, uh, I'm trying to watch some games and uh, hang out with uh, with Dash. But uh, it's pretty much work and Dash. That's right. You gotta gotta focus on building a company and manage the the, the home life too. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> there you go. 
Well, Chase, thanks so much for taking the time to share, you know, the great background story and, uh, you know, the Bostino and obviously the great things you're up to with HQO. And uh, as you mentioned, you are hiring. So what are you hiring for again? Uh, engineers, designers, and account managers. Perfect. Well, if you want to check out their job openings, you can go to their biz page on VentureFizz, which is venturefizz.com backslash HQO for a list of their openings. Chase, thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me and thanks for doing what you do at VentureFizz and helping uh, pick up the cause of supporting, supporting uh, tech startups. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.